Hello everybody and welcome to this week's episode of Activist Lawyer. I am delighted to be joined by Owen Beatty, solicitor. Hi Owen. Hey, good morning, how are you? I am good and you are in the studio. We love when people manage to make the trip to our Absolutely. lovely studio in Uri. Thank you. On this fine Friday, fine October themed wet. Friday. <laughs> yeah, it's wet. <laughs> it's always like that. We're not giving a good impression of our no. studio and it's always wet every Friday when somebody comes in here. But um, again, thank you very much for no making problem. this journey. Just by way of introduction, we're delighted to have Owen on um, today because he has just very, very recently established his own practice in Belfast, September this year. It is indeed. So like, 5th of September. What? Very recent. <laughs> so, very so, new. So new. Okay, so Owen will have lots of tips and lots of advice um, for people who may be interested yes. in the letter. Mm. Okay, so Owen Beatty and Co Solicitors was founded, as I said, and established in September 2022. And in finding Owen Beatty and co-solicitors, Owen identified the need for a modern, client-centred law firm in Northern Ireland. It's a law firm where clients are the centre of business and the law firm where clients are provided with straightforward, honest legal advice to secure the best outcome for them. So a little bit about Owen. He qualified from Queen's University and undertook his apprenticeship in a leading human rights law firm in Belfast, where he quickly became an established and recognised solicitor specialising in the area of litigation. Owen has been instructed in some of the most high profile and serious cases and has represented clients before all court tiers in this jurisdiction. Owen has forged a unique specialism in the representation of clients in all areas of personal injury litigation and he is regularly instructed in challenges against decisions made by government bodies by judicial review and equally Owen has a burgeoning reputation in the representation of clients under criminal investigation for offences such as white collar crime, fraud, sexual offences and other serious crime. Owen is a member of the Law Society of Northern Ireland and has delivered talks to other legal colleagues on best practice in the areas of historical abuse litigation. He's also committed to engagement in the community, working with schools and charitable organisations, which we will be keen to find out more about. So again, thank you so much, Owen. Um, So let's take us back in time a little bit. Law. What yeah. made you think of it? Because <laughs> um, you're heavily invested now. <laughs> I, I am indeed. Um, so firstly, thank you very much for, for having me. You're welcome. Um, great to be here. Um, I suppose by way of background, I completed my A-levels in Lismore Comprehensive in Craigavon and thought, well, law can be very often a platform to other careers and other avenues in life. So I picked law with politics, where I went to Queen's University, as I said, and completed uh, a degree in law and politics. And really, while I was there in my first year, I was very fortunate to be offered the opportunity of work experience in a leading human rights law firm in Belfast. Mm -hmm. And I had completed one week there in their criminal magistrate's department. And that really involved attending court and attending Mm -hmm. council and and going to the police station, which I thought was great, Mm -hmm. and, and getting the front line experience, if you will. And really what happened after the the first week, the firm offered, if I wanted to, to come back one day a week um, during the course of my degree and work in the office within the criminal department. And of course, having had a great first week and being exposed to the cold face of, of, of criminal the criminal process and representation of clients, I thought, well, certainly, why wouldn't I avail of this? So over a period of about three years, I had worked within their their criminal department one day a week alongside my degree 
Um, and again, that, that ran from attending court and attending council to preparing briefs and being very much hands-on in terms of the uh, processes of, of criminal cases. And I think really that's where my flavour and interest and, and maybe um, dedication, I suppose, to this area of work really started to grow and flourish. And I suppose in third year, I had considered the idea of the Institute mm-hmm. and going on to practice as a solicitor. And thankfully, and somehow I'd passed the exam and got into the Institute. And again, that same firm, a leading human rights law firm in Belfast, um, had offered me my training contract. Excellent. So there was a really a natural progression, mm-hmm. if you will, from doing work experience over a period of three years into y- your apprenticeship and, and training contract, if you will. Mm-hmm. So I started my training contract predominantly within criminal defence, um, and magistrates work, crown court work, representing clients who had been charged with offences from theft right to very, very serious crime offences. And it was really an unrivaled um, exposure to criminal defence litigation. Um, and you were seeing cases from the initial point of arrest right through to magistrates, crown court, court of appeal. And, and the firm had unrivaled um, expertise in that particular area. And as my, really my apprenticeship went on, my work started to vary mm-hmm. and expand. So it, it evolved really from criminal defence into prisoner rights and being involved in the representation of prisoners in McGabry and Hydebank and McGilligan. And really, at first instance, dealing with their welfare issues, mm. um, may that be internal disciplinaries, access to services. And again, there was a natural evolution from that into parole applications and representation of of prisoners before um, review panels. And the prison environment is really one in which you obviously are representing clients who may be charged with criminal offences and they they obviously have welfare issues and prison rights. But again, it would be uh, an area in which there can be challenges by way of judicial review, um, challenges against decisions of the Northern Ireland Prison Service. And, and really there was, uh, again, an evolution of where my career was going at that time mm-hmm. um, because the prison environment was, thankfully, and I was very grateful for the opportunity yeah. to, to do litigation, judicial review litigation, representation in criminal cases, uh, and obviously there was at that time personal injury work that would arise within the prison setting. So really in terms of there was a evolution for into prison, prisoner rights, and that's probably about my first year of my apprenticeship. And then more towards the second year of my apprenticeship um, or training contract, I had started to move into more litigation okay. um, while still retaining my, my DNA, if you will, of, cr- of criminal defence uh, and representation of prisoners. Um, I had started to practice and train within county court litigation, which really involved a whole variety, a whole vast array of, of work. Um, so it could have been a road traffic accident. It mm-hmm. could have been uh, a protection from a harassment injunction. Um, it could have been a, a claim against a, a, a garage who sold a car that maybe wasn't as... as, 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 as <laughs> very varied. <laughs> very varied. But, but again, there was a diverse plethora yes. of, of work to be in. And... Again, I was very grateful for all those opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it was just very lucky at the time. There was an evolution from, from my initial criminal practice through to prisoners and into the county court. 
and, and again, that gave me a wide-ranging and vast experience in a number of different areas um, of, of law. Uh, and thankfully, coupled with that, and, and in due course, there was you know a graduation, if you will, through to high court litigation um, uh, and representing clients in, in various high court actions against various entities. But throughout that, um, I had thankfully retained a varied practice, mm-hmm. but again, sort of confined to yes. a couple of different areas. Um, but it was very much an incremental development. Um, but again, the firm were, were very much nurturing of that and supportive of my development in those areas. Mm-hmm. And again, it was a great environment to learn. And you were grateful for the opportunity to handle cases and, and act in cases with counsel and very experienced solicitors and partners mm-hmm. who were cases that were very high profile, yeah. um, but extremely, extremely interesting. Yeah, really, really fast, as you say, and wide-ranging, kind of a real hands-on apprenticeship, which isn't what everybody, um, you know, ends up with. So you can see your natural progression there, but always tied back into, you know, your initial practice there in in criminal. So um, hands-on, and you remained there with that practice for some time. When did you think or, you know, maybe contemplate setting up by yourself? Because, you know, it's a scary, scary process, I'm sure. But maybe maybe it wasn't for you. So maybe share a little bit about yeah, your, um, your thoughts around that. I, I suppose a very daunting decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm quite upfront about that. Um, and a, a difficult decision to make. Um, I, I suppose from in my early days, I had thought about you know the aspirations of partnership and being mm-hmm. a director and all that goes with that um but i think within my own view on practice um i was very much tailored to a client-centered okay. approach yeah. to, to how a law firm should run and the, the law firm in which i worked was an excellent law firm you know very very um experienced and a huge amount of of client care and engagement with that but again, I wanted maybe to do my own thing, yeah. um, which many practitioners have done and have opened their own firm. But I wanted to tailor what I was doing. Mm-hmm. So you know, the firm which I now own, we, we are very set in what we do. Yeah. Um, but we specialise in that. And everything that we do is client-centred and client-informed. And that is something that I really wanted to do in terms of running my firm. Um, but the decision is not taken lightly to open your own firm. No, there's, there's I'd a, imagine. There yeah. are 101 implications and things to think <laughs> about, of course. Um, but I so I suppose maybe towards the middle of this year, I was thinking, you know, maybe I could open my own practice Yeah. Um, and make the jump, make a leap of faith, maybe. You went for it. I mm. went for it, and I am glad I done it. Good. Um, I, I generally am. Don't get me wrong, and I'm very candid about this. There are days that you think, oh, this is a bit difficult, or there, there's there's <laughs> troubles ahead, there's choppy waters. But I suppose if you take a pragmatic view on it, you're going to get that everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and you're you're going to face difficult days in terms of not just looking after your clients, mm-hmm. but you're now responsible for looking after a business mm-hmm. uh, and um, colleagues that I work with. Um, and, and the day-to-day run of a business. So mm-hmm. you're not just Mr. Lawyer anymore. No. You have to put the business head on. You have all of those hats on. And I wonder, do you think people are who, who are contemplating setting up or, or have set up recently their own practices, are we moving into um, more niche, specialised areas of law? Because the traditional model of a general practitioner, a high street set up, specialising in everything seems to be um, quite redundant now. Would I be right in saying that? And do you think it's better to really, you know, focus on the areas that you are an expert in and that you can provide that niche tailored advice? Yeah, sir, I think you're 100% right in that. Um, In my view, rightly or wrongly, I'm of the view that 
the day of the high street law firm uh, that does everything and anything mm-hmm. um, from wills and probate right through to convincing yeah. and criminal. I, I, I'm of the view that those days are mm-hmm. ultimately will come to an end and where your client will want to avail of someone who is specialised in the particular area yeah. in which they need assistance. And, and that is why the way in which we have established you know, Owen, Beatty and Co, we know what we do, we know how do we yeah. do it well. And, and our clients come to us for that unique and specialised mm-hmm. experience that we have in those particular areas. Um, but I think that the days of firms have 101 yeah. departments that does everything. Yeah. I, I don't think that's going to be mm-hmm. the future. Absolutely. And even when you look at the way in which firms operate, even across Water England and Wales, you can see a downturn in relation to the typical high street law firm. Yeah. Um, and I think incrementally that's, that's moving across here as well. Mm-hmm. So I think, again, to do your best your client you know you know what you're good at as a lawyer and as a practitioner mm-hmm. um, and I think by tailoring your services you then provide a better service for your client mm-hmm. and you look after them in the long term and would that really inform I, I guess the makeup of your, your firm being a modern client-centered law having that approach you know, is key to the, the, the finding of your firm. Um, and just on that, so it's very clear that your your experience, your apprenticeship, your previous work experience with your firm is really informed, you know, the areas that you are now an expert in and that you, you continue to practice in. Um, what what are you specialising in at the moment? Or are there any kind of core areas that yeah. we could look at? Um, in, in terms of the areas that the firm covers, um, in terms of litigation, so all aspects of personal injury litigation, and may that be from road traffic accidents um, right through to um, actions for historical abuse victims, um, actions against police and, and other government departments. So litigation, really, personal injury litigation and all the forms that it does take. We also represent uh, applicants in uh, judicial review challenges uh, against decisions made by government. Um, and again, that can uh, go from prisoner um, rights right through to challenges and um, for clients who are subject to investigation by police. Mm-hmm. Um, again, you know, I have retained uh, a criminal defence portfolio of work where we would represent clients who are arrested and detained for questioning throughout police stations in Northern Ireland in this jurisdiction, um, right through to the court process. And, and we represent clients before all court tiers um, in, in this jurisdiction. Um, so we, we do have a a portfolio of work, mm-hmm. um, but we know what we do, yeah, um, and we know that the the areas that we take on, Excellent, uh, and yeah. that's why we have tailored the approach mm-hmm. so that we can look after our clients to the, to mm-hmm. the best of our ability. Brilliant, and I know, and I actually took part in one of your training sessions as well around um, HAA redress. That forms, you know, a, a large part of your work, and you have considerable experience working in that. Um, you've had quite a, a lot of success around that too. It's very, very kind of to say that, well, actually. It's a, t- a tough area, I'd imagine. Yeah. Um, you know, so how, how's that going? Is that something that's continuing? Yeah, or? Uh, that, that's something very much has, has thankfully um, remains part of our business model, um, rep- the representation of victims and survivors of historical abuse. And again, that takes a number of different forms in the practice. And I think that we have to remember that when you are representing mm-hmm. victims of abuse, you're not dealing with your straightforward road traffic accident. Yeah. Not, not, not to downplay you know, that area of litigation of course, or, or slips yeah. or trips, but you're dealing with inherently difficult uh, and sensitive topics for anybody to discuss. And, and very often, and speaking from experience, um, the client who 
entrusts you with that case. You may only be the second or third person that they've spoken to uh, around their experiences. May that be in a children's home mm-hmm. um, or, or where the abuse may have taken in the school. So in, in terms of that litigation, if you will, there are a number of different angles to it. I suppose one, um, and the most widely known, is the HIA redress scheme, which is the application um, on behalf of clients to the scheme for compensation. Mm-hmm. And really that involves consulting with a victim or survivor of abuse, you know, relaying from them their experiences, committing that to writing on their behalf, and then maybe commissioning medical evidence and, and sending that to the redress board, who really assess that evidence um, and then determine you know, compensation. Mm-hmm. Um, on foot of that and again that that scheme was really born of the 2015 heart inquiry um which which so many of our clients um, had had taken part in um and one of the recommendations from that inquiry was this redress scheme um equally the representation of of um, victims and survivors of abuse is not just confined to the redress scheme there is ongoing high court litigation okay um really for two reasons because one there are um some applicants um who due to the, where their abuse took place maybe in a school for example does not fall within the eligibility for the redress scheme so they have to proceed by way of traditional litigation um but secondly some of the cases are so grave in terms of the the, the circumstances the the only um venue to properly secure compensation for your client is by way of the high court, court. litigation process okay. but it, but again that is litigation that is client-centred and mm-hmm. um, I know that's easy for me to say that sitting here and trying to to say that but what you have to remember is the very sensitive and difficult topics and yeah. um, that you are discussing with with clients in that particular sphere and, and I suppose thirdly within that area of historical abuse litigation is the representation of clients in judicial review proceedings and mm-hmm. um, there have been a number um, of groundbreaking judicial reviews taken against decisions of government um, and decisions of the, the HI redress board which I was involved in mm-hmm. um, so again it's deploying not just the traditional personal injury litigation model mm-hmm. it's being live to that judicial review is mm-hmm. a, is available to challenge decisions on behalf of victims and survivors of abuse mm-hmm. um, so that is something that that is a huge part of our business yeah. uh, and we're very grateful for those instructions mm-hmm. and to be trusted with those instructions Good, yeah. because it is obviously very sensitive um, but it is something, thankfully, that throughout my apprenticeship and, and, and my former mm-hmm. employment and in my new practice that has continued to grow, thank Excellent. goodness. Yeah, know. no, that's fantastic. And then you've had a number of high-profile cases as well. One in particular stood out against a, a social media giant, yeah. <laughs> namely <laughs> Facebook. Facebook. <laughs> How did that come about and you were successful in that, that yeah, case? Yeah, well? um, so that, that case involved the representation of a journalist mm-hmm. um, and political commentator uh, and effectively, uh, he had a number of Facebook pages which he would have used to publish and to uh, express his views in relation to political and religious matters. And he had uh, thousands of followers, not just in Northern Ireland, but throughout the world. Um, and Facebook had taken the decision at the time to effectively pull the shutters down and mm. shut down his Facebook um, platforms. Right. And, and obviously this had a detrimental impact for, for our client. Um, and he had a large number of followers, followers as I've said, who yeah. were equally not as happy. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
we have been instructed, thankfully, to take an action against Facebook. And it was one of the first actions of this nature, I understand, okay. to be taken against Facebook. And it was really a, a number of elements to it. There was a personal injury element to the case where the client had suffered uh, as a result of Facebook's actions. But there are also niche and, and very boutique areas of law of data protection mm-hmm. um, and his Article 8 rights of the convention were engaged and his Article 2 rights. So it was the first case that really, in, in our view, had brought together various elements of your traditional litigation model but were combined with data protection and convention rights. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and thankfully that case resolved on favourable terms for, for our client. It was a confidential basis, but it was resolved on uh, very favourable terms for him. Excellent. Uh, and again, one of the very first cases um, of, of that nature to be taken. Wow. Yeah, and I'd say not an easy one no. at, at that. <laughs> so obviously, you know, a lot of your work is carried uh, through and you have very interesting cases and, and niche cases that you mentioned there. And you can see how passionate you are about both the clients and the outcome there, which is fantastic. Um, but just in terms of some of the criminal matters that are ongoing and, you know, actions against um, the police, I know that still forms a major part of your work. Um, what specific issues yeah. perhaps are coming up in that regard? I, I suppose um, criminal litigation in terms of defence litigation um, can bleed into other parts of, of your practice mm-hmm. um, and the representation of a client um, under criminal investigation gives you the experience of, of knowing and understanding how police operate mm-hmm. uh, an investigation against a client and equally you have the experience in of how they're meant to operate when dealing with the victim yeah. um, of an investigation. So it's that experience from our criminal work which which flows into our litigation against police mm-hmm. uh, and other state agencies. Uh, and, and as recent as Monday of this week, we had a case settled again on favourable terms, thank goodness, against the Chief Constable. Okay. Um, uh, and that case, again, it was a very difficult case in the sense that I, I was representing a lady who um, was um, made complaints of a sexual nature to police, um, very, very grave context. Mm-hmm. Um, she put her trust in police to investigate those alleged crimes and it transpired the police did not. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not just me saying that. The police ombudsman at the time had conducted a very thorough investigation in relation to the alleged feelings made um, by our client and he had uh, upheld our client's complaint. From that favourable complaint um, by the ombudsman, we had lodged high court um, proceedings against the chief constable um, in relation to an alleged breach um, of her human rights under the convention, um, Article 3, together with alleged um, feelings, we say, of misconduct and the failure to follow reasonable lines of inquiry. That case was listed for trial um, mm-hmm. on Monday of this week and was due to run for three days, full contested hearing in the High Court, senior counsel instructed ready to go, and the case ultimately settled okay. on, on Monday of this week. Um, and a very favourable outcome for our client. Obviously, as I've said, hugely, hugely difficult subject mm-hmm. and very, uh, um, both personally and, and, and the emotions that are at play yeah. there, but and to commend you know, mm-hmm. our client for bringing the case and standing up for what she knew at the time was Brilliant. right yeah. uh, and an absolute credit to her uh, mm-hmm. and um, 
and to bring the case as far as a contested trial before the High Court and going through the various litigation stage is not easy no. at the best of times. But when you're dealing with the with the state and, and, and actions such as this, it heightens uh, not just emotions but the difficulties of, of these cases. So the case had resolved on, on Monday of this week in our client's favour. Uh, at the same time, there are a number of these cases that remain ongoing. Um, right. the, the traditional view of criminal law is that it can only be deployed to represent clients who are subject to investigation. Mm -hmm. It is also there to help and assist victims and complainants in investigations. And very often that is something that is not uh, recognised or or, or seen. Um, So it's all about really trying to use your experience from other areas Mm -hmm. and deploy it to assist your client Mm -hmm. as best as you can. And again, a similar uh, example would be uh, an ongoing High Court judicial review against the Chief Constable um, for our client who is uh, a witness. Again, a different scenario. Uh, she is a witness to a criminal investigation um, and the police have seized uh, and detained her mobile phone. And we have an ongoing judicial review in relation to her data protection rights as a witness during, okay. the, during the course of a, a police investigation. Um, again, a very unique area mm-hmm. um, and something that I don't think has been done here before um, so we are challenging the current status quo if you will in relation to how police nosy through your phone when they have it effectively. Maybe it's a bit cheeky me saying that but that's the, that is the position so yeah. there's ongoing litigation around that uh, and um, it's a a very unique case uh, and we're hopefully going to get judgment relatively soon. Well, it's clear that having experience of working within that area you can you can pick out yeah. um, instances where those who do not work would take it for granted that you know criminal law is as you said it's just representing somebody who's subject to investigation yeah. and that's really where it's at but just from you describing some of those cases there there are so many elements mm-hmm. that could potentially go unchallenged unless you know as you said people bringing those cases to you. I mean, you have to commend their, their bravery Absolutely. for doing that, which which you do. But also to have somebody who can say, well, yeah, that's not, you know, yeah. that's something that can... Yeah, and, and I think that goes back to the training that I had received yeah. in, in my firm where I had worked. It was a leading human rights law firm and it was it was instilled in us as you know, young solicitors, um, apprentices, that really we should mm-hmm. not just be seeing the case that is before you. Yeah. But, but to look in the wider landscape Excellent. of how you can assist and help your client. Um, and, I, and I suppose that is something that I have tried to instill within my current, yeah. you know, my own business. And it's something that, that I've had solid foundations mm-hmm. in that previously. I, I suppose one final um, case that I would mm-hmm. mention on um, is an ongoing inquest. Okay. Um, it is the representation of the, the family of the late Daniel McConville. Um, Daniel tragically passed away in McGabry in 2018. And uh, there is an ongoing uh, investigation being conducted by the prisoner ombudsman. Um, and we hope to have a, a report um, from um, Leslie Carroll um, in, in the near future. Um, and there is an inquest uh, scheduled um, for March of next year. And that case really touches again on prisoner rights. Um, and he had passed away tragically in, in prison as a remand prisoner. And it, it really interplays between his access to welfare services um, and really, again, um, how prisoners who have mental health issues and problems and how they're being treated within um, the custody setting because there have been a number of reports you know, that are you know, in the public domain now that illustrate a systemic um, deficit, we would mm-hmm. say, in relation to the treatment of 
prisoners and the provision of proper and adequate mental health services. So that that's another case that I am involved in, high profile in nature, but again, a very uh, important case because it's really to examine the circumstances surrounding Daniel's passing yeah. and to commend you know Daniel's family and the advocacy and the work that they do in their own right and um, for prisoner rights and um, particularly Daniel's father who who would be a who would be a staunch supporter of prisoners rights within within mm-hmm. prisons um, and, and again a, a difficult case but hopefully via the use of the coronial process inquest that we will get to really the, what happened in his okay. in his tragic passing and will that go on for some time or is that yeah is yeah that case is listed for March and it as it currently stands we're, we're hoping two weeks mm-hmm. um, but it could, it could run longer um, and again we are you know and we're giving consideration to other legal yeah. mechanisms that we okay. can deploy here to try and uncover what happened in relation to his passing. Uh, again, a hugely emotional case, yeah. a very difficult case. Um, but at the same time, as lawyers, we have to be alive to the legal issues and mm. be alive to potential challenges that should be taken to try and get the four corners of what happened yeah. in that particular case. Well, that just leads me into my next question that I was going to ask you with these, you know, intense cases, um, you know, not only those that are high profile, but those cases that you're working with people on a very personal level mm-hmm. on matters that really impact them. And I mean, the toll that that case of Daniel McCon- McConville will take on his family is, yeah. you know, I- I- incredible. Um, how do you, I suppose, and we've asked other guests this as well that work in similar areas, do you separate yourself from the case i mean you've mentioned there you know it's your job you know to identify areas that are up for challenge and you know to 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 provide that professional service but you're a human at the end of the day you're clearly very passionate about your clients how do you balance that or or do you um i I suppose uh, to be very candid about it Mm -hmm. but it's difficult Mm -hmm. it can be difficult because you're dealing as you've said sir very traumatic and Mm -hmm. personal circumstances um, but I think what you have to remember at your heart of it is that you're a solicitor employed to look after your client to the very best of your ability to do the best by them. Is it difficult at times to detach yourself from the obvious emotions of a case and you're dealing with families at their best, but very often at their worst as well? And you wouldn't be human if it didn't affect yeah. you ways. But I, I try to, and I would give advice to anybody, to try and draw a line mm-hmm. um, between you know, not letting the case affect you too much. Sure. Um, but I don't think I would be human in saying that they don't. And, and I think sometimes that helps because if you're personally invested in the case and you're personally committed to the case and you feel you know, a, a sense of loyalty to, to your client and to the case in itself, I think that forces you and strives you on more to, to assist and represent your client to the very best of your ability. Mm-hmm. But but again, to answer your question, it, it it's, uh, can be difficult. Yeah. Um, but I'm honest about that. Um, but at the same time, you have to make space for yourself and, sure. and uh, the people Good. around you. Yeah, you're yeah. so right. Um, and just on that, I mean, you've set up your firm in quite a... <laughs> when have we not had a tumultuous <laughs> time in, in politics and in our environment here over the past um, number of years? But particularly... Uh, now, I mean, with with the current um, British government in the sense that, you know, they have launched quite a few scathing mm-hmm. attacks on the legal profession <laughs> over um, a number of years. And I don't see that going away anytime soon. I mean, lawyers have become scapegoats for their failed yeah. policies time and time again. Um, but your work involves, you know, the, the, I mean, the mechanism of judicial review, which was attacked, um, relying on human rights instruments, which was attacked. You know, there's some kind of um, rollback, e- essentially, um, in respect of a lot of what they had said but how important do you feel it is 
for lawyers like yourself, solicitors, barristers, anybody championing, you know, people who, who need a voice and need representation is. And how do you correlate that with what the government, I suppose, in terms of, you know, um, you know, attacking the rule of law, which yeah. is what we all stand to uphold? Yeah, I, I think um, and it is something that has um, been covered quite widely in the media recently. Mm-hmm. Um, the commentary, the scandalous commentary, mm-hmm. in my view, um, by the government against lawyers and, and I, I, I was looking at this recently that the former Home Secretary had described quite actually this podcast mm. lefty activist <laughs> lawyers uh, and, and the other comments by the former former uh, Prime Minister Mr Johnson around um, lawyers frustrating deportations of, of right. clients uh, and equally you had um, members of Parliament using the blanket policy of parliamentary privilege to name and shame <laughs> lawyers who represent maybe unfavourable people within um, the wider UK, I, I think, quite frankly, that's scandalous. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's a dominant indictment um, on the government, in, in my view, to try and oust lawyers who use the law to represent their clients to the best of their ability. And I think it was it was Rosemary Nelson um, had said many, many years ago, if you do not defend human rights lawyers, who will defend human rights? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that was a very apt phrase by, by a lady who championed the cause in her own right. Mm-hmm. Um, but the government's um, attempt to shut down not just the use of judicial review and human rights within England and Wales, but if you look at the attempt um, in relation to the shutdown on the legacy mm-hmm. um, conflict um, situation yeah. here in our own jurisdiction, um, again, that is an attempt, in, in, in my view, in my view, by the government to curtail the rights and freedoms of, of, of members of the public. And I, and I think that sometimes the government, when they're using phraseology you yeah. know, and discrediting lawyers, I think they should remember that the rights that we deploy to help and assist our clients aren't just for criminals, aren't just mm-hmm. for uh, clients in, in immigration spheres. It is clients, for example, a lady who was let down by the police in a failed investigation, domestic violence, Human rights are come into play in that in relation to your family rights, um, and equally the right to education. Yeah. Um, all of those factors, uh, human rights permeate throughout mm-hmm. all of that. But again, the government pick and choose their narrative mm-hmm. um, of what they want to s- peddle to the media, and and I find frankly, comments by the government against lawyers are unhelpful um, yeah. in, in the twenty first century. When, when again we are being entrusted by clients to do a job, mm-hmm. um, but the government, may that be via legal aid cuts, um, delayment in payments for, for legal aid, the, the which gives rise to Article 6 issues and convention rights, mm-hmm. that they use all the tactics that they possibly can. And then we see it, as I've alluded to, the government using a legislative basis to shut down uh, investigations in relation to horrific crimes uh, in Northern Ireland. Yeah. And effectively trying to pull the shutters down in the police ombudsman and the legacy investigation branch and all of that. And I think that very often um, the media look elsewhere throughout the world for attempts by governments to effectively curtail democracy and and shut it down. But we need to look closer to home. Exactly. You're so right. Um, and just, I mean, the attacks continue. Uh, you mentioned their um, activist lawyers and lefty lawyers, yeah. which is at the time that this podcast really started up. But that just leads us into, this was the next question about activism and the law, I guess. And how important is that to you? All of our guests kind of have a different perspective on that. Do they go hand in hand? How do you 
see yeah. the two engaging. I, I suppose, in my view, there are really two ways to answer it. Mm-hmm. Um, activism in the law in the sense of, one, your client has um, instructed you or entrusted you mm-hmm. with very often a hugely, hugely difficult case for them. Yeah. Okay, And I, I've alluded to some of these cases, may have been a criminal context, historical abuse or otherwise. And I think, figuratively speaking, activism in the law can be, one, standing by your client. Mm-hmm. Um, because very often when the client comes to you, they have nobody else to turn to. Yeah. May that be in a police station or otherwise. And when your client entrusts you with their case, and obviously you have to advise them of, of the merits of a case mm-hmm. and how to progress it and, and the rights and the wrongs of it. But again, standing by your client. Don't be afraid to stand by your client when things are difficult. Because I know from experience, sometimes you can be the shoulder to cry on. You can be the person to say, you know, thanks very much, or or, or, or you you build a relationship. But standing by your client through thick and thin, difficult times is, in in one sense, activism in the law. Because you are a lawyer, um, and standing by your client can be activism in itself. Mm -hmm. Um, And maybe that might sound maybe a wee bit cheesy, um, but I, I wouldn't shy away from that because if you look through decades of what went on in this jurisdiction, yeah. you had certain people that stood out for standing up for for rights for clients, and, and that in itself is activism. Yeah. And again, given given your client one hundred and ten percent in everything that you do for them, and and the second way, in my view, in terms of activism, the law because they do go hand in hand. Is as a lawyer, as a solicitor, or a barrister, or any other paralegal or legal executive is being alive to the legal mechanisms that are open to you to challenge decisions to help mm-hmm. your client. Very often, um, lawyers, and there's no criticism, yeah. are curtailed or blinkered in their view of, of how they can challenge something. But as a lawyer, you can be an activism in the law mm-hmm. by being alive to the legal mechanisms that you can deploy against the state in themselves. Sure. And, and again, that takes a number of different uh, um options or avenues, may it be by a bail application, may it be by way of litigation, may it be by way of judicial review, um, or attending a police station, whatever that may be. Mm-hmm. But again, it's being alive to, as a lawyer, the legal issues at play, the issues that you have to contend with, and really how you're going to challenge and appeal those decisions. Sure. And, and again, that goes hand in hand with standing by your client, being in their corner, figuratively mm-hmm. speaking, if you will, but again, being alive to, because you're a solicitor instructed in the case, being alive to the legal uh, mechanisms mm-hmm. that you can use um, uh, and um, deploy to stand up and, and really advance your client's position. And just in terms of, I mean, getting to the position that you are now, I know listeners would be keen to hear um, some of your advice and tips. And one question that has come up recently, actually, from particularly graduates or students who, I mean, you've very candidly and openly shared, you know, your journey into law. And, you know, it all starts from from your apprenticeship. But it's not easy for people who really want to get into this area, whether it's um, a criminal, any kind of human rights, public interest law. Uh, the commentary that we get from people is everything's still focused in learning on commercial law, yeah. you know, and that's where the, where the money is, that's where the funding is, that's where you get your contracts paid for, whether it's north or south. But people are really keen to hear how practically they can, you know, become, get good experience and really, you know, work in areas of human rights and public interest law. And I wonder, have you any advice or tips that you could share? Yeah, and, and I remember 
years ago contemplating those questions myself, mm-hmm. and I'm very candid about that um, because I don't come from a legal dynasty mm-hmm. or, or legal connections. Uh, I, I don't have any family members who are solicitors or barristers. So I remember contemplating those questions. Well, how do I get into this? Yeah. What am I actually going to do? Um, and I think the first thing is, and maybe activism is the right word, but being proactive. Uh-huh. Um, and I would advise anybody is start sooner rather than later. Yeah in terms of you know trying to get the experience and you have to be proactive in your approach in terms of contacting firms and and that's be level about this you may not get paid for your work experience mm-hmm. okay but you have to take the long-term view of mm-hmm. that'll go down to my cv i mm-hmm. was in that firm for a week doing work experience and it's really about being proactive and, and knocking those doors yeah. if, if you will and i'm not trying to oversimplify it Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you you know you and yourself have to be proactive as a student to say, well, I want a long-term view to be a solicitor. This is the area that I want to practice in. So you need to be an, an activist or be proactive in, in mm-hmm. that regard and start wrapping doors uh, and and getting into those firms. I, I appreciate the, the sentiment and uh, it's something I've grappled with around the big commercial firms yeah. and the lovely shiny lights of how it looks. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and again, I have a lot of friends who practice within the commercial world. Yeah. Um, would I want to do that job? No, mm-hmm. not for me. Yeah. And, and I know that. Um, but at the same time, you know, get the experience of doing some commercial work as well, mm-hmm. b- because at least you know. Then once you've done it, it's, it's not. It's mm-hmm. not for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, the commercial firms are more geared up and tooled up for, you know, training contracts and vacation yeah. schemes mm-hmm. and all of that. I, I think that our criminal firms and our personal injury firms ultimately in the future will go that way as well. Mm-hmm. I think there will be an evolution okay, of, yeah. of how we recruit um, within law firms mm-hmm. um, who aren't commercial in many senses. But my advice would be just be as proactive as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. And again, be, you know, don't be afraid of wrapping the doors and sending the emails and the CVs. Now you may, you may mm-hmm. never get a reply, but ultimately you may have mm-hmm. somebody who, who will and mm-hmm. who will bring you in, and, and like I was, yeah. okay, and, and I've been there, you know, I'm quite upfront about that, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I was very grateful for the opportunity that I got, and, and, and in those views, you have to realise when there's an opportunity in front of you to grab with both hands. Excellent, yeah. I mean, it is, it, it is, there is an element of luck to it, yeah. but do you think that colleges and um, faculties, law faculty, should perhaps place more of an emphasis on these areas of law I mean going back way back when <laughs> decades ago like th- they didn't they formed maybe a module here and there. there there was no real emphasis in that as a career path or a career journey I do know we've had guests on now that things have changed somewhat in this whole um, revision of clinical um, legal education where it's more of a hands-on approach going out and working with solicitors can the institutions do more when it comes to their students do you think Owen yeah absolutely I would agree with you about that mm. Sarah um when I think back to my time at university, which really isn't that long mm-hmm. ago, um, even then it was very much in the direction of commercial yeah. um, practice. Um, it was the commercial firms that would have come into university and mm-hmm. done the guest talks, and mm-hmm. it was very much geared towards a commercial outlook of where maybe the university yeah. wanted you to go. Um, I don't accept that view. Um, I, I really don't. I think that um, universities and even schools should be um, looking at the bigger picture and yep. um, that not everybody has to be go in and, and be a commercial practitioner um, and it would do no harm to invite other firms n- not just within the human rights context mm-hmm. um, but within other faculties of law as well right, yeah. um, because it, it can't be a one-sided argument you have yeah. to be you know 
collective mm-hmm. in your approach. So I think that's important, yes, quite rightly, that mm-hmm. universities do play their part in this process. Sure. Uh, and again, do not be blinkered or don't be blinkered to really the wider landscape that is at play. Mm-hmm. Excellent, excellent advice. And a real insightful um, discussion there about your journey. You've been very candid and very generous with your time and sharing all of that with us. So I'd like to really thank you again well, thank you very for much. joining me. Um, and it's so exciting to hear about your new firm. And we, we wish you the best of luck with it. You're fresh and new and you, you've lots of exciting plans ahead, yeah. which is fantastic. So thanks for joining us no, here. Thank in, you very much. And thank you for having me. In the studio. Thank no you. problem, Owen. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast was recorded in Granite Podcast Studio. Interested in starting up your own podcast but don't know how? Granite Podcast Studio can help. Record your podcast in our state-of-the-art studio, which is based in the heart of Newry City. Our studio has cutting-edge and user-friendly technology and can seat up to four people. We also provide an editing service for our team using your guidance and editing notes to provide you with a flawless finished product, leaving your listeners wanting more. For more information on how you can get started, visit www.granitepodcaststudio.com.